Shalom everyone. This is Ashira Yosefa bringing you another Noahide Nations online class from Jerusalem. B'zrat Hashem, today we will begin our historical overview of the seven universal laws, where and how they began, the reaction of mankind towards them, the impact they had on ancient history, and the type of faith they engendered. You might find this amazing, but today we are not going to get much beyond Adam. In fact, we will just begin to speak of Noah by the end of the class. As you can see, there is much material to cover, especially during ancient times and prior to the destruction of the Second Temple. It's only been the past two millennia that the Noahide laws have fallen into obscurity. Before we get into the class material, let's just take a quick overview of the classes that will be coming up in the weeks ahead and during June and July. Next Thursday, God willing, we will continue with our historical overview of B'nai Noach and the Seven Universal Laws. At the beginning of June, we will be changing the schedule a bit to move up our class entitled Leaving the Fold, Handling the Consequences of Leaving One's Religion. We will have a guest presenter for that class, spiritual psychotherapist Helene Finkelstein. Helene will be out of Israel for the first or the latter few weeks of June. So, Belinator, we will do the class with Helene as our guest during the first week of June. You can check the class schedule for our Shivu courses as well as the many other wonderful classes that are being offered by Noahide Nations on the website at www.noahidenations.com on the Virtual Yeshiva website, www.virtualyeshiva.com. During the months of June and July, the online classes will run weekly on Thursdays at 10 a.m. EST, live from Israel. Blinetter, the classes will be divided into two month-long themes. During June, we will look at learning from Noach and following Avraham. During July, we'll consider obstacles to spiritual clarity. In June, we will do our class on leaving the fold with our guest, Helene Finkelstein. We will do a class on knowing God. What is his oneness? What does that mean to say God is one? What is creation? What is our obligation in our relationship to God? We've been given free will. How do we use that in our obligation towards God? What are our obligations towards the seven mitzvot, towards the Torah? We'll do a class on returning to God. We have free will. What does that mean? How are we to exercise it? We'll do a class on repentance. What is the Hebraic understanding of tshuva? It's a five-step process, and it's quite different than the concept of repentance as it's taught within Christianity. What is divine providence and how does it interact in our life? That will be our class on returning to God. We will do a class on 7 or 70. How many and how do we observe the universal Torah laws? We'll take a look at the Torah origins and the sources for the seven mitzvot. We'll look at them as seven portals to many mitzvot. We'll look at obedience as an attitude. And we'll consider the seven mitzvot as an elevation of mankind. The Talmud tells us that a B'nai Noach, a Ben or a Bat Noach, who takes upon themselves an oath to keep the seven mitzvot, that would be to stand before a Beit Din and take that oath, that they are considered as righteous as the high priest. That is quite an elevation. During the month of July, with the theme Obstacles to Spiritual Clarity, we will be doing a class on presumed identities and resisting the scepter. We'll talk about identity theft. Are we guilty of it? We'll talk about the Torah from the perspective of it's not in heaven. Moshe told us it's in our heart and in our mouth to do it. We'll also look at who holds the scepter for Judah. And we'll talk about the role of Jews in being a light to the nations and interpreting and teaching Torah and the seven mitzvot, of course. We'll do a class on spiritual pride and spiritual mixtures, the legacy of Yeroboam. We'll look at the lingering legacies that we sometimes bring with us 
when we change our religious beliefs and how these attitudes affect our learning. We'll take a look at a Rebbe Nachman of Breslov teaching that the less one knows, the less we feel that we know Hashem, the closer we are. Not the less one knows intellectually or as far as your Torah learning, but when we have the feeling that we know God, Rabbi Nachman taught that that is actually when we are the furthest away from God. And we'll take a look at something I like to call something old, something new, something borrowed, not. The Tanakh makes it very clear that spiritual mixtures are not pleasing to Hashem. So we'll take a look at Torah and we'll take a look at the Ketuvim, the writings, to see what the Tanakh teaches us in this regard. And we will do a class called Resisting Authority, a Human Condition with Spiritual Consequences, in which we'll look at ways that we limit our capacity for revelation. We'll look at Moshe's example. The Torah called him the humblest man on earth, the most humble man on earth. But in Hebrew, the word used for humility in the case of Moshe is anav. And that is a very special word, and we'll consider what it means and what can we learn from that. We'll take a look at another Rebbe Nachman teaching that before every ascent, there is usually a descent. There's a valley before the mountain. And we'll see how that applies to our spiritual lives so that we can prepare ourselves when the valleys come. And we'll take a look at how we merge the internal and the external aspects of our spirituality to and arrive at progress, achieve success in our spiritual growth. Now, having taken a look at the classes, and again the class schedules for all the Noahide Nations classes are available on the Noahide Nations website, www.noahidenations.com, or on the Virtual Yeshiva website, www.virtualyeshiva.com. So I invite you to take a look at them at your leisure and either hear them live or when they're rebroadcast and that schedule will be available through the Noahide Nations website. Now, let's take a look at our class for today. Originally, the seven universal laws were simply taught and accepted as God's commandments. As such, they were the first introduction to Torah ever received by mankind. A number of Midrashim mention that Noach's son Shem and his grandson Aver established study houses to instruct people how to understand and to fulfill these seven laws. We learn from Rashi's commentary on Parsha Toldot that after Yitzhak sent him away, Yaakov spent 14 years in the yeshiva of Ever before he traveled to Badam Aram to seek a wife. 14 years is a long time. So it's obvious that the seven universal laws are far more complex and comprehensive than they are presently regarded. Atop Mount Sinai, the seven universal laws were reaffirmed by God when he gave them to Moshe as part of the Torah and instructed Moshe that Israel was to teach these laws to the nations of the world. Up until the time of the destruction of the Second Temple, history bears record of positive interaction between B'nai Noach and Jews. The numbers of B'nai Noach were once substantial. Many of them lived in Eretz Yisrael under the status of a Ger Toshav, a resident stranger. But this changed with the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. Expulsion from our homeland dramatically impacted the ability of Jews to teach the universal laws, as we will see in a future class. Thank God we now have our homeland back. This year, for the first time since the Roman exile, there are now as many Jews living in Eretz Yisrael as there are Jews still living in exile in the diaspora. And just as there is a resurgence of interest in B'nai Noach in the nations, there is a resurgence of interest in B'nai Noach amongst Jews. But, for the past 2,000 years, the seven universal laws for mankind have been under a veil of silence. They have never ceased to exist, because they are an integral part of God's eternal Torah. But they were rarely a topic of conversation, and few efforts were made to educate the nations concerning them. As a result, they fell into obscurity. 
Except in rare instances, Christianity has not taught the Noahide laws. And if they are mentioned within Christian circles, they often fall into the same category as the Torah, done away with and replaced by a doctrine of salvation by grace alone. This approach, though popular with many, basically alleviates mankind of our primary responsibility in life, and that is to distinguish between right and wrong, to favor good over evil, and by so doing to elevate our bodies and souls to become vessels which reveal God's presence in this world. How do we know how to do this? By learning and observing God's commandments as they are presented in the Torah. According to the Rambam, in his Mishnah Torah, Chapter 9, Law 1, the seven universal laws were presented to Adam and Chava on the day of their creation. As such, they are the most ancient of all religious doctrines. How curious that at the present time these Sheva Mitzvot are considered among the newest of religious doctrines. I cannot help but think of what King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. I realize that whatever God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, and nothing can be subtracted from it. And God has acted so that man should stand in awe of him. What has been already exists, and what is still to be has already been and God always seeks the pursued. Rashi interprets the statement, God always seeks the pursued, in the context that God always seeks to be on the side of the pursued and to exact retribution from the pursuer. In other words, ultimately man will be held accountable for his deeds. For any who may be unfamiliar with Rashi, the name Rashi is an acronym for Rabbi Solomon, son of Isaac. He was born in France in 1040, and he was the author of what is regarded in Judaism as the greatest of all spiritual commentary. Rashi wrote at a level that a five-year-old could understand, and yet his teachings contained levels of depth that the most educated of Torah scholars would find interesting and challenging. The English word commandment is the Hebrew word mitzvah. Mitzvah also means connection. This is no coincidence. Lo mikre, as we say in Hebrew. When we observe God's commandments, we connect with God's will and wisdom, and if we are faithful in observing His commandments, we grow to feel more and more connected. Keeping the commandments ignites a spark within us, and the light of God illuminates our souls, elevating both soul and body. When this happens, we feel alive to our Creator and we interact more positively and effectively with the people around us. Connecting with Hashem through the observance of His commandments is life for us now and life for us in the world to come. Just before His death, Moshe told the children of Israel, Apply your hearts to all the words that I testify against you today, with which you are to instruct your children to be careful to perform all the words of this Torah, for it is not an empty thing for you, for it is your life. Deuteronomy 32, verses 46 and 47. A Jew is born with a legal obligation to keep all the commandments of Torah. This obligation is there whether an individual Jew chooses to live by Torah or not. Amongst the nations, each person is born with a choice. Will you or will you not approach the one God and creator of the universe in the manner which he has prescribed? The seven universal laws were given to Adam for all mankind. They were reinstituted with Noach after the flood, practiced and taught by Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and reaffirmed to Moshe as being that which Israel was to teach to the nations. The Rambam taught that Israel is to impress these laws upon the nations to the point of coercion, that adherence to these laws is of such importance. God himself made the point of starting mankind off with these laws at the time of creation and ensuring that they were passed down throughout time, even to the point of establishing an entire nation to teach them. So let's now go back to the beginning of time, 
to Gan Eden. And consider what happened with Adam and Chava, the beginning of our journey of discovery on the seven universal laws. The Babylonian Talmud in Sanhedrin 38a tells us that the source of the seven universal laws can be found in God's command to Adam in Genesis 2 verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you are free to eat. But as for the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, you must not eat of it, for as soon as you eat of it, you shall die. Now we all know the story. Adam and Chava did eat of the tree of knowledge. And, while they did not die instantly, they did bring upon themselves and all their future descendants a form of spiritual death, a descent from their original elevated level of spirituality and the inevitability of physical death for all mankind. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Genesis 4, verse 19. How are we to understand Adam's sin? If the seven universal laws governing all mankind find their source in Gan Eden, on the day of man's creation, we had best begin our historical overview by examining the event that set mankind on their present journey. First, we must remember that both good and evil find their source in God. Hashem is the definition and source of all good. However, He also created the potential for evil in order to bring about the opportunities necessary for our rectification and the redemption of the universe. In Isaiah 45 verse 7 we are told, I am the one who forms light and creates darkness who makes peace and creates evil. I am Hashem, maker of all these. Torah teaches us that man has an inclination towards good and an inclination towards evil. In Judaism, we refer to these as the Yetzer HaTov and the Yetzer HaRa. In Genesis 1 verse 31, we are told, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Therefore, even the Yetzer Hara is considered good in the eyes of God, as is the evil he allows for his purposes. He is sovereign. We must remember that. And whatever he allows in this world ultimately has a purpose for good in the end. In Hebrew we have an expression, Gamzula Tova. This also is for good. It's not always easy to say that. But if we believe that Hashem is the one true God, the creator of the universe, and that He is the sovereign, then we have to accept that ultimately all things will work together for good in the end, including the evil inclination. The Rambam, referring to Genesis 1.31, wrote that the words very good refer to the evil inclination, the Yetzer Hara. How can the evil inclination be considered good? The Rambam explains that evil became a part of man's nature after the sin, that it suddenly became a natural impulse within man. Is this always bad? Let's consider a couple of examples. If someone is starving, they will get food in any way they can, even if it means stealing it. If someone is starving, Stealing is a natural impulse because the instinct of hunger is blind to right and wrong. Therefore, in certain circumstances, stealing just comes naturally. Is stealing right? No. We are commanded not to steal and to overcome this impulse when it arises. However, we must also recognize that this inclination towards what is wrong becomes a method of life preservation in certain instances. Anyone who has ever raised children knows that children can be cruel. Until a child gains some maturity, his primary instinct is to satisfy his own desires, as immediately as possible, irrespective of the situation at hand, the needs of his parents, or whether his parents have the resources necessary to comply with his demands. Sometimes their reactions to not receiving what they want can be quite vicious especially to their peers. 
Is cruelty sanctioned by Torah? No. Do young children always honor their mother and father? No. Are children evil? Of course not. But they do have a natural yetzer hara that they must learn with age and maturity to control. Now the reason I raise these issues is to address a popular distortion taught within Christianity, a distortion that may have lingering influence on new B'nai Noach. Christianity errs in equating the evil inclination with evil. As we just learned, in its opening passages, the Torah tells us that God has declared everything he made to be very good, including the natural impulse for evil within man. Christianity teaches that man is born with a tainted soul as a result of the sin of Adam. Nothing could be further from the truth. This would mean that God created something that was not good, and that the soul within us, the life breath God breathed into our ancestor Adam, was tainted. This life force, our nephesh, is the spark of our Creator. It is the image of God that He created within us. He said He beheld all that He had created, and behold, it was very good. Who are we to call Hashem? A liar. We know God cannot lie. So if we say that man's soul is tainted from birth, then there's an issue. Every morning when we awake, Jews thank Hashem for the pure soul He has placed within us. As a result of the sin of Adam, we must now wrestle to maintain the purity of that soul. But when it was placed within us, it was pure and very good. God said so. We learn to overcome our natural inclination for evil when it influences us, influences us to do wrong and to favor the good inclination instead. This builds spiritual maturity and elevates our soul. God's commandments give us the instruction book we need to recognize and separate good from bad. In other words, to rectify Adam's sin of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We are human beings, not animals. God gave us the capacity for free choice, and we do have a choice. Christian doctrines cast us as helpless victims of fate, incapable of remedying our situation without their prescribed cure. Since ancient times, pagan ideology has maintained that good and evil are mortal enemies. Light and darkness were perceived as independent powers locked in a constant struggle. Two powers, one good, one bad. Now let's think for a moment. If we believe, as Torah teaches, that God is one, and there is none other, then to claim that good and evil are powers in their own right, two powers, is to imply that there is more than one God. Most Christian doctrines teach that the Trinity, a three-person deity of independent entities, supernaturally linked, is one God. Well, if you also take a look at the fact that evil is usually personified by Satan within Christianity, and he's also taught that Satan, or implied that Satan is an independent power with whom people are required to struggle throughout their lives, this battle between good and evil, between God and Satan, well, then that would imply there are three powers within the Trinity and one power in Satan. Three plus one is four. So much for monotheism. The Torah and the Tanakh show us that evil has a purpose in the world, that it was created to fulfill a sacred task. The Malbim gives the example of the first chapter of Job, where we find Satan in a meeting with Hashem, together with the heavenly hosts. The Malbim contends that if Satan was allowed by God to participate in this divine assembly, then evil must have a holy purpose. Hashem tells us through the prophet Isaiah that he alone creates good and evil. Therefore, evil and the evil inclination within every human being are part of his plan and are holy within their purposes. The existence of evil allows for gradations of goodness, which is evident throughout creation. If all creation proclaims God's glory, 
then creation is composed of increasingly constricted levels of divinity. Rabbi Uziel Malevsky, in his commentary on Parashat Breshith, comments that evil provides the barriers, the crucial points of resistance that demarcate one level of divinity from the next. So Adam and Chava were created and placed in this world. They were given the seven universal laws, and they were created with free choice. According to Rabbi Malevsky, freedom of choice meant that the thought crossed Adam's mind. God tells me to do this, but in theory I could do otherwise. I am capable of doing otherwise. And he did, and so have his descendants ever since, thereby fulfilling their human potential or depleting it. However, even here there is good. Given human nature, when do we truly exceed our potential? We do it when we are with do we do it when we are within secure parameters, safely within our limits? Or do we really excel and expand our potential when we are faced with a challenge? It is a fact that any act that involves overcoming difficulties is an act that promotes personal growth. With the giving of the seven universal laws and the capacity for freedom of choice, God presented all mankind with a lifetime of opportunities for personal growth and connection to our Creator. Now we know that Moshe was charged by Hashem that Israel was to teach the seven universal laws to the world. But what about the father of all mankind? Chazal, the Jewish sages, contend that God charged Adam with this responsibility as well. They derive this from the verses that we just quoted as the source of the seven universal laws, namely the command not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The command is introduced by the words, And the Lord God commanded Adam, saying, This comes from Genesis 1.16. We seemingly have a superfluous word here. God commanded Adam. Is the additional verb saying actually necessary? Wouldn't it have been enough to simply say God commanded Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did he have to say God commanded Adam saying? There's a reason for this. It is a principle of the Torah that there are no superfluous words. If a word appears to be unnecessary, it is there to alert us that there may be something we need to learn that is deeper than the obvious. Rabbis Chaim Klorfin and Yaakov Rogalski, in their book The Path of the Righteous Gentile, comment on this verse. They say the word saying indicates that God not only said the command to Adam, but he intended that Adam say it as well. It is a principle of biblical analysis that when a verse in the Torah states, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, It means that God taught Moses something, and that he expected Moses to teach it to the Jewish people, or in the case of the seven commandments, to all of mankind. Adam therefore taught his children the seven universal laws. I mean, at that point in time, they certainly were universal. There was no Noah for them to be named after. So Adam taught his children the seven laws, instructing them that they were to teach their children as well. This is very much in the pattern of Jews. We are instructed in the first part of the Shema that we are to teach God's commandments diligently to our children and to speak about them when we sit in our house and when we walk by the way, when we lie down and when we rise up. And we're to say the Shema when we rise up and when we go to bed. Often it's said three times a day, if not more. How do we know that Adam did this? How do we know his descendants knew these seven laws and were expected to obey them? The answer is simple and the proof is clear. The flood. Would God have judged the world with such devastating totality if man had not been culpable? If they did not know they were required to abide by certain laws? If they did not 
knowingly choose not to observe them? Hashem is a righteous and compassionate judge. Unless the inhabitants of the world knew and understood what he required of them, and then willfully chose to rebel and disobey, the flood would not have been necessary. The earth became corrupt before God. The earth was filled with lawlessness. When God saw how corrupt the earth was, for all flesh had corrupted its ways on the earth, God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with lawlessness because of them. I am about to destroy the earth. Genesis 6 verses 11 to 13 Unless there was an accepted standard of righteousness and laws which defined this standard for everyone, then how could the earth be judged as corrupt? How could mankind be deemed to have corrupted their ways? What provided the standard for ways that were not corrupt? The seven universal laws. In an earlier verse we are told, Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Genesis 6-9 Therefore, there were laws that defined blameless behavior. Rashi, in his commentary on Genesis, states that mankind had corrupted themselves through idolatry and sexual immorality and that the lawlessness or wickedness that's mentioned in Genesis 6.13 refers, refers to theft. These are violations of three of the prohibitions contained in the seven universal laws. Therefore, the laws had to exist in order for man to be judged for violating them. Mankind had 120 years to repent of their ways. It was not that God lacked mercy. Noah built the massive ark before their very eyes, a visible warning of impending destruction, not to mention Noah's repeated explanations of why he was building a massive boat nowhere near water. Despite this, the wicked generation felt themselves invincible and ignored the opportunity to mend their ways. Now mind you, Noah failed in an area where Avraham later succeeded. The Torah does not tell us that Noah interceded with God on behalf of mankind. It does tell us in detail of Avraham's repeated attempts to avert the decree of judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. As a result of Avraham's intercession, Lot and his two daughters were spared. Noah was righteous in his generation, but ten generations later, Avraham proved more righteous than his ancestor. The Midrash tells us that not only did God graciously extend mankind 120 years in which to repent while the ark was being constructed, but he also gave them an additional seven days before the commencement of the flood. During these seven days, God changed the laws of nature and threw the world into a state of chaos that could not be ignored. We are told that even the sun reversed its course. Concurrently, the Midrash tells us, Hashem created a heavenly refuge amidst the chaos, a veritable Gan Eden, hoping to arouse repentance within mankind by giving them a taste of the reward reserved for the world to come. During these seven days, Noah busied himself with gathering the clean animals God had instructed him to put aboard the ark. The Midrash tells us that God spent these seven days mourning for the human race that refused to make use of all the goodness that he wished to bestow upon it. And so it came to pass that on the seventeenth day of Heshvan, in the year 1656, the raindrops began to fall gently at first, still giving mankind a chance to repent and avert a deluge, transforming it into a blissful rain. But they did not. And so it was that the great flood provided a global mikvah in which the impurity of the world was removed and mankind was given a new father, a new world, and a new beginning. Now, I want to stop the historical overview at this point and we'll pick it up next week 
and the class, and we'll take the historical overview from Noah through to Abraham. We'll see how far we get through the patriarchs because there's a lot to cover, and it may well take us the remaining two classes of May to cover it. But I want, before I go on, to just talking a bit about the seven universal laws as a summary to the class, I want to talk about the rainbow. We know that at the, at the end of the flood, when Hashem made a covenant with Abraham, or sorry, with Noah, that he would not destroy the world again by a flood, there was a sign. And that sign was that he put his bow in the sky, the rainbow. Now, the rainbow, we are told by our Jewish sages, actually means that when it appears in the sky, what God is telling us is that we deserve, we actually deserve another flood. The rainbow in the sky is an indication that the world is due for a flood just as in the days of Noah. But it's because of Hashem's promise that we are spared because he is faithful to his covenant. God places the rainbow in the sky to let us know that the judgment we deserve is being withheld because he is faithful to his word and to all of his covenants. And that might be a new way for many of us to look at uh, rainbows when we see them as opposed to just looking up in the sky and thinking, oh wow, that's beautiful, that's Hashem's sign that he gave to mankind at the time of Noah. It's actually a very contemporary and current message to us today. Now before we close, let's just reflect a little bit on the seven universal laws. I also want to talk a little bit about what the word portal means. We often refer to the seven universal laws as a portal, that they're a portal to so much more. And I was thinking the other day, I used this description, this analogy in an interview on Light Unto the Nations on Israel National Radio yesterday. I was interviewed by Jeremy Gimpel and Ari Abramowitz on their program, which runs weekly on Wednesdays and is available in the archives each week. Ari and Jeremy uh, do a wonderful job of outreach to the nations, and they're wonderful people, very inspiring young men. And I dis was describing the Noahide commandments to them as being uh, portals. And then it occurred to me, I wonder what the dictionary has to say about the word portal. And it's amazing. Of course we think of a portal as an opening. But listen to some of these definitions. This is really unique. Of course, a portal, uh, the word is a noun. But the very first definition that's given in Merriam-Webster's dictionary is a communicating part or area of an organism. Now, I bet you didn't know that in our body we have a vein that is called the portal vein. So they give a definition that a portal is a communicating part or area of an organism, and it's the point at which something enters the body. Now, the seven universal laws communicate God's will to mankind. They allow mankind the basic understanding and guidelines we need to approach God and to enter into his will for our lives. So the analogy fits. Considering the definition of a portal as a vein, it is a short vein that carries blood into the liver. It's called the portal vein. Now Leviticus 17 tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. What is our life force? Our nephesh, the soul that God originally breathed into Adam. This portal vein within our bodies carries the blood which carries the soul into the liver. What is the function of the liver? To cleanse the blood. So we might draw an analogy that the seven universal laws function as a portal vein to bring us into the purification and to the elevation of our souls that is available through the commandments of Torah that are applicable to us. In fact, the human body is an amazing mirror of the spiritual realities. Everything within our body is a mirror to a spiritual reality. And perhaps someday in a class we'll have a chance to talk on that. Portals are also defined in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary as a grand and imposing entrance. 
such as the portals of heaven, the portals of success. And a contemporary definition of a portal is a site that the owner positions as an entrance to other sites on the internet. Well, there's an analogy here too. The seven universal laws are an entrance of sorts. If observed, they are gates, the doors that will lead a person into a right relationship with God, to the observance of other related mitzvot, and they enable mankind to merit a share in the world to come. Now that could be compared to a grand and imposing entrance. So let's just reflect upon the seven universal laws. Every day, twice a day, a Jew recites the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Hashem our God, Hashem is one. We proclaim the unity in existence of God. The doctrine of the seven universal laws is a vehicle which carries this doctrine of unity to the world. Cognitive recognition of God as one, indivisible, supreme and infinite being originated with Avraham. Prior to Avraham, there were obviously individuals with a sense of Hashem's reality. Adam and Chava, Enoch, Noach, his son Shem, his grandson Aver. But it was Avraham who contemplated and crystallized a definitive belief in God, which caused him to forsake the idolatry in which he'd grown up, forming a new system of beliefs, a religion of one God, which he then taught to his household and to everyone he encountered. Avraham was the quintessential convert, and he is regarded in Judaism as the father of all converts. A convert becomes, in fact, a son or a daughter of Avraham and Sarah. We add that to our name. My full name is Ashira Yosefa Bat Sarah Imenu or Bat Avraham Ivinu. Unity of religion originated with the patriarchs of Judaism. Whenever this concept exists outside of Judaism, it has been borrowed from Judaism. Unity, as understood by Judaism, applies to both God and to mankind. Judaism and the faith of B'nai Noach are both monotheistic. Both doctrines seek the unity of mankind with one another and with God, namely a world in which all people acknowledge the one true God, approach him in accordance with his Torah guidelines for Israel and the nations, and live in peaceful accord with one another, observing God's commandments for each. Judaism's approach to this unity of God and of man differs from all others. How is this so? All other religions are very proprietary in their concept of unity. They usually teach, believe as we believe, and you will know God, and the world will be one. Well, history has proven that this approach does not work. There have been more wars and more bloodshed over religion than any other issue. Judaism teaches that the whole world does not have to follow the same path. Indeed, we are not supposed to. Are we to acknowledge that there's only one God and creator of the universe? Of course. But the Torah teaches two paths. It establishes two paths to the knowledge of God and to world redemption. One path has been established for Israel as a people and a nation of priests and witnesses. A parallel path has been established in Torah for the nations of the world. This path is defined by the seven universal laws. Given that God gave both paths, he can be found on both. Anyone from the nations who sincerely and deeply desires to take upon themselves the full yoke of Torah and the destiny of the Jewish people may do so by conversion, just as has been the case since the time of Avraham, and so will be at the time of Mashiach, after which the Talmud tells us there will be no more conversions. However, conversion to Judaism is not required by God. He has set forth the seven universal laws as the parameters within which all mankind may know him. In fact, unless a person 
wants to take upon themselves in all sincerity and with full commitment all of the laws of the Torah and all of the related halachot that explain them, the rabbinical laws that have been added to provide fences around the Torah to ensure that we are reminded to keep those 613 mitzvot, the ones that are applicable to us. Unless the person is willing to take upon all of that, in addition to taking upon themselves the destiny of the Jewish people, past, present, and future, they should not convert. We were discussing this yesterday on the program Light Unto the Nations on Israel National Radio. Ari asked me a question. He said, wouldn't, being told that there were these seven mitzvot, wouldn't that entice non-Jews to want to convert? Because I had made the comment that often the seven mitzvot are perceived, uh, particularly within Christian circles, are perceived as um, a barrier that has been put in place by the rabbis to keep non-Jews away from Torah. And Ari said, well, wouldn't it be the other way around? And we got talking into this issue of conversion versus non-conversion. Right now, because there has been such an awakening, such a quickening amongst the nations for the Torah, a hunger for the Torah, which the prophets of old said would happen at the time leading up to Mashiach, the footsteps of Mashiach, it's called, there's a quickening. And with that quickening, people are perplexed. When they start to change the beliefs they've had all their lives, they lose their spiritual identity. They're searching. They're looking into the Noahic commandments. They're looking into other options. They may be considering, because they're drawn to the Torah, considering conversion. And there's a romantic attraction to Judaism. It's ancient. It's mysterious in many ways. There's an allure there. Those things are all wonderful, but they are not reasons for conversion. And God has established a way that all of mankind may approach him, may have a share in the world to come, may live a life of commandments, of parallel Torah observance, that is something that they can choose, that they can grow in. The seven laws, the basic understanding is the starting point. They are these portals, these openings in which God communicates his will to us and we can grow in them and it's a beautiful thing. But it does not mean that a person must convert. Conversion is a very serious thing. And the rabbis teach that if a person enters into conversion and it's not right for them and they're not committed to it, they convert and then they fall away from their commitment to keeping the mitzvot and the halachot that a person can actually damage their soul. That's very serious. And it's something that is not often understood. Jews in B'nai Noach, the righteous God-fears among the nations, can and are supposed to live as good neighbors would, side by side. When Rabbi Aden Evan Steinsaltz, the Av of the developing Sanhedrin's Beit Din, for B'nai Noach, he actually he's the Av of the Beit Din, and they've established the Beit Din for B'nai Noach, was speaking to the people in attendance at the big Sanhedrin event in January, in which the first ever High Council of B'nai Noach took oaths of allegiance to the seven universal laws. He talked about this concept of being neighbors. He gave it as the example of the ideal relationship between Jews and B'nai Noach, between Israel and the nations of the world. Neighbors don't have to be family. We're all part of God's family. Jews and the nations of the world were meant to live side by side, acknowledging and worshipping the one true God. And we have God's promise that at the time of the Messiah, that this will come to pass, that his reality and unity will be revealed and that all the nations will acknowledge that he is Hashem and Israel and the nations will live as neighbors. May the coming of Mashiach hasten to bring us to that long-awaited day. Now, that's the end of the class for today. Next week's class will continue. We'll pick up the historical overview of the seven universal laws in B'nai Noach from the point of taking it from Noach through Avraham and into the patriarchs. 
At the beginning of the class today, I went over the class schedule that I will be presenting May, June, and July. This schedule is available on the Noahide Nations website, www.noahidenations.com. You can also find it on the Virtual Yeshiva website. I would encourage you as well to go to the Noahide Nations website to check the resources they have in their web store and those resources I'm sure will increase in variety and, and quantity as the weeks go on. It's a very lonely thing for many B'nai Noach because often they're the only ones in their community, at least at the first. So it's wonderful that Hashem has given us these means of communication through the internet and these the websites such as Noahide Nations that are looking for the books and the resources that are so useful to helping B'nai Noach feel part of a community and get the foundation of learning that they need to grow in the Noahide Mitzvot. So I'd encourage you to visit the Noahide Nations website. I would invite you to visit our Shuvu website at www.shuvu.com. We have a weekly newsletter that you can subscribe to on the website. We have audio classes on the site. We've got teachings from rabbis here in Israel that are really committed to reaching out to B'nai Noach, to reaching out to non-Jews, to, to helping the helping mankind find spiritual clarity, the awakening amongst the nations, the quickening, the yearning for Torah, really touches the hearts of Jews. It's an amazing thing. I mean, for so long there has been such division, there's been such a, a gap between Jews and, and the nations. And to see hundreds of thousands of people yearning and being drawn to the Torah, it's a little unnerving at first. But more and more the rabbis are really doing, looking for ways that they can help. And they are providing articles for us at Shuvu that we can put on the website. There's articles that I've written that are on there that my colleague Pinchas David has written that are on there that hopefully will help you find and be comfortable with your true spiritual identity. And together with Noahide Nations, uh, we're privileged to be able to give these classes through Noahide Nations. We just, uh, it's our prayer that you find your true place within the Torah and that you grow in your knowledge and your relationship with Hashem. That's all for this week from Jerusalem. Be well and B'srat Hashem, we will be back next Thursday, 10 a.m. EST. Goodbye, everyone.